If you would, then go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans and chapter 8. As we return again to that chapter to continue our verse-by-verse study of this book. This morning we're going to read verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8. And our focus on this Lord's Day will be verse 13. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. This is the Word of God, and here is what we read. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Mount Hermon verse 13 sets before us a way of life and a way of death. And the question is this, which way are we traveling? Uh, This verse has been very significant in the church of Christ, especially over the last several hundred years. Um, This verse has been significant largely because of a man named John Owen. Uh, There are many who would say that of all the Puritan pastors and teachers and writers, there was never one who rose any higher in understanding the things of God than John Owen. Owen was a choice servant of God, a man who was refined in the fire of affliction. Uh, Owen and his wife had 11 children, and 10 of them died as infants. The one daughter that survived uh, made it into adulthood, and then shortly after she was married, died of consumption. Imagine what this does to someone, to have your heart ripped apart by suffering through the death of all of your children, not just some, but all 11 of them. Many would have been driven to deep depression, mental problems, even suicide. But in the providence of God, these deep sufferings drove Owen deeper and deeper into the Bible. He was a pastor, a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell, He was eventually the vice chancellor of Oxford University when it was at its highest peak, Christianly speaking. He was also given given charge of Christ Church Cathedral, uh, the very highly influential church there in Oxford. And since that time, John Owen has been used by God to impact hundreds of thousands directly through his writings and millions indirectly through the pastors and the teachers who have learned from him and then benefited their congregations. But one of the greatest gifts that God gave to his church through John Owen was his little book, about 80 pages, explaining Romans 8, verse 13. Uh, Most of you have heard of it, I hope. It's called The Mortification of Sin. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. 
Um, if you've never walked through that book, and I know many of us did together on, a Wednesday, on Wednesday nights a few years ago, um, we have the easy-to-read Puritan paperback version out there on the, uh, the table uh, when you come in. It will do your soul good. Uh, get the mortification of sin by John Owen, this wonderful exposition of Romans 8, verse 13. I say all this to say that when we come to this verse... I am one of those who comes to it as someone who has already benefited from it and been impacted by its power. At different seasons of my own life, this particular verse of the Bible has been something of a kick in the rear to me to spur me on in my own pursuit of holiness. I won't pretend that I have made it very far, but the little growing that I have done in holiness has largely become about because of verses like this one that has come to bear upon my soul. And so my prayer this morning is that God might use this verse again to spur me on in my battle with sin and that God might use this verse to spur you on in your battle against your sin. So I want us to dig into Romans 8 verse 13 realizing how helpful it has already been to so many Christians throughout history. And I want to dig into it using that same shovel that we love to use, the shovel of questioning. There are a few things that really help us get into what a text is really saying than asking it questions. We ask questions and then we look to the verse itself for answers We look to the immediate context of the verse for answers. Uh, Sometimes we have to look to the rest of the Bible as a whole to find answers. Scripture interprets Scripture. And in this way we can understand and we can feel the weight of what Romans 8 verse 13 is teaching us. And so we're going to put our shovel in six times. Six questions that we're going to ask Romans 8 verse 13 to make its meaning more clear. Here are our six questions. Number one, what is meant by life and death in verse 13? Number two, is this verse teaching salvation by works? Number three, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Number four, what are the deeds of the body that must be put to death? Number five, what does it mean to put the deeds of the body to death? And number six, what is meant by those three important words, by the Spirit? We're just going to look at the first three questions this morning. We'll save the other three for tonight. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, what is meant by life and death in verse 13? What is at stake In this verse, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does he mean, live and die? What kind of life and death is in view here? The Bible speaks of life and death in at least three different ways. Sometimes it's a reference to physical life and physical death. Sometimes it's a reference to spiritual life and spiritual death, being alive to God or being dead to God. And sometimes life and death is used to refer to eternal life in heaven or eternal dying in hell. 
And so which does Paul have in mind here? Which meaning of life and death makes the most sense? Well, this is clearly not a reference to physical life or physical death. And we know that because in this verse we find out that some people are going to live and some people are going to die. Physically, death is certain. Unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. But in this verse, he's not speaking that way. He is speaking of two ways, two paths you can take, one that is living and one that is dying. And so this can't be physical death. He must have something else in mind. So maybe this is spiritual death in life. Maybe what Paul was saying is, if I live according to the flesh, I will die spiritually. And if I put to death the deeds of the body, I'll be alive spiritually. I'll be alive to God. Could that be what it means? That can't be what it means because that's putting the cart before the horse. You don't kill sin and then as a result get spiritual life. Just the opposite. You must have spiritual life if you're going to kill sin. The rest of the Bible teaches that if you are dead spiritually, you will live according to the flesh. If you are alive spiritually, you will put to death the deeds of the body. Think about it this way. You have to be alive before you can do what the living do. Dead people can't do what living people do. Dead people can't walk or talk or work or eat. Dead people don't squash bugs and drive cars. This is what the living does. When it comes to spiritual life and death, it is those who are spiritually alive who put to death the deeds of the body. The spiritually dead can't do that. The fruit doesn't give life to the tree. The tree has to be alive, and then the tree bears fruit. You're not made spiritually alive by fighting sin. You fight sin because you've been made spiritually alive. So the rest of the Bible comes against that interpretation and says this cannot be spiritual life or death that Paul has in mind. It can't be spiritually alive to God or spiritually dead to God. Which means there's only one other option, and it is the option that best fits the context. This isn't physical life and death that's at stake. And this isn't spiritual life and death that's at stake. This is eternal life and death that's at stake. What's at stake in this verse is an eternity in God's love spent in heaven, or an eternity in God's wrath spent in hell. And so we must approach this verse with fear and trembling. Here's what is at stake. This is sobering, but we must hear it. If you live according to the flesh, you will go to hell. And if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will go to heaven. Remember I said that when we ask questions about a verse... We look to the rest of the Bible for answers. Well, the rest of the Bible shows us that this is the right answer. In fact, all that Paul is doing in this verse is echoing the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Matthew 13, 49 through 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Matthew 18, 7-9 Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, Herman, let's be unequivocal about this. If you are not fighting sin, but if you're just giving in day after day to the desires of your flesh, you are not a Christian. You do not have saving grace. Christ's death on the cross offers you nothing in your present state. The judgment of God still hangs over your head. But if you are fighting sin, if you are resisting the desires of the flesh, if you are seeking to practice self-control, if you're striving to submit yourself to the will of God, then you are a Christian. And the Spirit of God is in you. And you are going to heaven. Mount Hermon, this is not just Bible talk, theology talk, abstract talk. This is absolute truth concerning your soul. Are you killing sin? Everything is at stake here. Remember Owen's famous line, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Question number one, what's at stake? What is this life and death? It's heaven or hell. Question number two, then isn't this Paul teaching salvation by works? Because that's what it sounds like. Isn't Paul teaching that we, we earn our salvation, that we merit our salvation by fighting sin? If I fight sin, I'm a Christian. If I don't fight sin, I'm not. It's work salvation. And if I were to take this verse out of context and go to any house in this neighborhood and read that verse to them, what they would hear is works salvation. There are two huge reasons not to take it that way. Number one, the rest of the Bible, including the rest of Romans, clearly contradicts the teaching of salvation by works we look to the rest of the Bible as a whole, and we look to Romans in particular, and we ask what is the way of salvation that God is revealing, the overwhelming answer is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul has not been unclear in this letter about the way of salvation. He has not been ambiguous or vague. He has not danced around this, this teaching Romans 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you a human being? If you're a human being, then the works of the law will not justify you in God's sight. 
Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, verses 2 and 3, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham is exhibit A to show that it is not works. It is faith that saves. Romans 4, 5 and 6, To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. If Abraham's exhibit A, David is exhibit B. Salvation is by faith apart from works. And on and on we could go throughout the Bible to show this is the doctrine that the Bible teaches But then second, even verse 13 itself will not allow us to say that this is salvation by works. Why? Because verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And according to Romans, seeking to earn your salvation by works is living according to the flesh. Trying to be good enough on your own, trying to impress God, Trying to be self-sufficient, leaning on your own strength and your own deeds instead of what Christ has done. This is living according to the flesh. And if you do that, you will die. So this verse is not teaching salvation by works, just the opposite. It is teaching salvation by faith. For what does Paul say in the second half of verse 13? He does not say if you in your own power put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He does not say if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and beat sin, you will live. He says if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And we'll answer that question later of what it means to put the deeds of the body to death by the Spirit. But it it at least means this. You're putting to death the deeds of the body through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on Christ. He takes the attention of men and women and boys and girls and He draws their attention to Christ. The Spirit in all He does shows the glory of Christ, which means if the Spirit is doing anything in your soul to help you kill sin, it is this. He is bringing you to Christ. He's teaching you to trust Christ. Galatians 3, verse 5, Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Answer, by faith. Christ supplies the Spirit to you to help you kill sin by faith, not works. It is as you trust the gospel that you find the power to kill sin. There would be no true sin killing in our lives apart from the Spirit of God using the Word of God to grant faith to our souls. Believing on Jesus, having 
Him as our all in all, believing that He is ours and that we are His. This is what the Spirit uses to teach you to joyfully submit your will to God's. To argue that this verse teaches work salvation is to completely miss the point and to rip it out of its true context. Before we move on to our third question, let me mention two very quick implications of this. First, this means that non-Christians cannot really kill sin in their lives. Sin killing is a Christian endeavor. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Who are we marching against? Marching against our own sin. But if we're not Christian soldiers, we're not going to win. Non-Christians can replace one sin with another sin. They can weaken a sin over here while another one is being strengthened over here. But true growth in holiness and purity and righteousness is something that only happens by the power of the Spirit of God. If you are here and you are not a Christian, you can turn to self-help books to try and help you become more patient or to help you take control of your temper. But true growth in godliness is impossible for you. You are missing the root of faith in Jesus, and therefore you can never bear truly good fruit. Everything that is not of faith is sin. Patience that does not spring from faith is sin. So that even your best works will be like filthy rags in the sight of God. Jesus is your only hope of ever really tasting the sweet nectar of holiness. He is your only hope of ever knowing what it is to be truly godly. Do you long to be godly? Jesus is your only hope of heaven, and He's your only hope of heavenliness. He is your only hope of heaven. He is your only hope of holiness. Number two, second implication If you are a Christian, this is good news. If you are a Christian, your rightness before God does not change with the ups and downs of the battle. If you are a Christian, your rightness before God does not change with the ups and downs of the battle. Your salvation does not rest on the battle. You are not meriting your salvation in your battle with sin. You are not earning your salvation in your fight with sin. You are fighting sin because you've been saved. Your righteousness before God, your peace with God, your rightness with God, that is unchangeable. As unchangeable as the Lord Jesus Christ who is your righteousness. Isn't that good news? Because let's face it, church, if our salvation depended on how well we're doing in fighting sin, would any of us stand a chance? Would we not be all utterly lost? When you are winning against sin... When you see pride or selfishness or lust or gluttony or greed beginning to die in your life, it does not mean that somehow you've earned more of God's love. 
And when sin has the upper hand, and despite your fighting, you realize you've blown it again, and you've blown it again, and you've blown it again, and you keep trying to beat the sin, and you've lost again, you have not lost God's love. He does not love you one ounce less today than he did yesterday. The ebb and flow of your battle with sin has nothing to do with the peace you have with God. Jesus is your peace with God. It is settled in the courts of heaven if you believe in Him. I find that to be one of the most encouraging truths in the world. So if you've come here this morning and you've had an awful week, don't be discouraged. Maybe you said things to a family member that you know you should not have said. Maybe you've returned to an old habit you really thought was long gone. Maybe you came in thinking that there was no way after this week that your God could love you now. Dear friend, God already knew your sins, past, present, and future, when He saved you. He hasn't been surprised by anything that happened this week. He hasn't been taken off guard. All of your sins are forgiven, dealt with at the cross. Find joy in being forgiven. Find joy in the reality that God loves you with an ocean of love. And in that joy, get off the ground, wipe yourself off, and get back to the battle. Third question. What does it mean to live according to the flesh. Verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Hell. So we really want to know, what does it mean then to live according to the flesh? Because I don't want that. What does it mean? Well, Paul's already told us, hasn't he? That was verse 5, 6, 7, 8. We spent a lot of time there, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there again. Let me just remind you that in our messages on verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we saw that to live according to the flesh is to have a mind that is set on the things of the flesh. That is, to live according to the flesh is to have a mind that is preoccupied with things that are either anti-God or just disconnected from God. To live according to the flesh is to find your delight in the stuff of this world disconnected from God. To live according to the flesh is to be hostile to God, wanting to do things your way instead of His. To be in the flesh is to not like His rules, not like His boundaries. You want to do what you want to do. To live according to the flesh is to live as one who thinks he's not under authority as one who tries to deny the authority of God, as one who sets up his own authority. I am master of my life. The person who lives according to the flesh might say good things about God, but when God's will crosses that person's will, the person's will wins out. This person's heart does not want to submit. Why does Paul keep telling these Christians in Rome not to live according to the flesh? Because after all, he is speaking to Christians. These are supposed to be people who have the Spirit. These are supposed to be people who have, who have hearts that have been changed. They do love God. They do trust Christ. They are submitting to Him. 
These are Christians. They've come to the place of surrendering themselves to Jesus and saying, not your will, but my will be done. And that's true of us, right? If we're Christians in this room, we have come to the place of surrendering our wills to the God who loves us and is smarter than us and is wiser than us. Why does Paul keep saying then, don't live according to the flesh? And the answer, of course, is obvious. It's because not every person who thinks he's a Christian really is. And the quickest way for you to show your true colors is for you to fall back to living according to the flesh. There is such a thing as counterfeit faith. There is such a thing as a faith that is not given by God, a faith that does not last, a faith that does not save. You remember the seed that fell on the shallow soil? And at first the plant was growing and it looked healthy, But when the heat of the sun came, that plant was scorched and it died. And then there was that seed that fell among the thorns. And that plant at first looked as healthy as any other. But it became entangled in the thorns. It it could not stretch itself out to receive the sunlight it needed. It was entangled in the stuff of this world. So many concerns of this life, so much I got to do tomorrow, so much else that has my heart instead of Christ. It became entangled in thorns and it died. And there may be some in here. And you look right now like a very healthy Christian. And all of us in here would affirm it. We would say, yes, we, we see his life, we see her life. That person genuinely seems to be saved. And yet what we don't know is that the thorns are already growing around your heart. You already have idols that have begun to take more of your affection away from God. You're beginning to love other things, to be more preoccupied with other things. And eventually, God forbid, you're going to fall away and prove that the faith that you now have is not an enduring faith, not a God-given faith, and not a saving faith. Friends, mark my words. If you are not alert, if you are not active in fighting off sin in your heart, and in your mind, and in your words, and in your actions, they will eventually pull you away from Jesus. There is not one of us in this room that can say, I've fought with Jesus so long, I don't have to fear proving myself false anymore. Not one of us. An 80-year-old Christian who has walked with God for as long as he or she can remember can prove him or herself to be a false Christian tomorrow. When we say once saved, always saved, it is not an automatic thing. Jesus keeps his people believing and he keeps his people fighting. And if we don't keep fighting by the power of the Spirit, we show that he's not really at work in us. Cultivated land. Oh, yeah, illustration. What would happen to your yard if you did nothing for 10 years? What would happen to your neighborhood 
if nobody did anything for 10, 20 years? Would it suddenly go back to wilderness? Wouldn't it suddenly become forest encroaching back onto the neighborhood? All that cultivated land, that well-kept land would suddenly find itself unkept again. This is how it is with the human heart. If you don't fight sin, sin will take back over. That is its way. Be fighting sin, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Leave all fighting sin and it will overtake you. It will harden your heart. It will desensitize you to the gospel. It will leave you with no affection whatsoever for Jesus Christ so that you can sit through a Sunday sermon with disgust or with utter boredom, longing to get out because your heart is so hardened by sin you don't care anymore. Stand up, Christians. In the joy of Christ's love for you, Fight in the joy of Christ's promises to you. Say no to the temptations to sin. In the joy of being forgiven, take control of yourself. Give your full self to God. Preach to yourself. The first sense of sin popping into your your mind, that thought, that that word you want to say, that feeling you have... Whack-a-mole, right? It pops up. You beat it down. This is no game. Because through Jesus, you are guaranteed the victory. You can find some pleasure in it. (laughs) It is a fun journey. Seeing ourselves grow in Christ. As Adam worked the Garden of Eden, you worked the Garden of your soul. You pull out the weeds so the good fruit can grow. You go to battle against your sin like David versus Goliath. David won not because he was mightier, and you are not mightier against your sin, but David won because he trusted in a mighty God, and so can you. We fight our sins with the weapons of faith in Jesus, joy in Jesus, hope in Jesus, allegiance to Jesus. And it is through Jesus that we watch the giants of selfishness and pride and Greed fall away. So Mount Hermon, rest in the Savior. Rest in the joy of your salvation. And in that strength, go to battle against your sin. Let's pray. So take a few moments to think about what we've heard. Feel what's at stake in verse 13. Feel the urgency of it. That This is not something we can take lightly. This is not something we can walk out and just forget about it. This is something that must be uppermost in our minds. Think about what's been said. Talk to God about it. Cry out for repentance. Unbelievers, run to Jesus for salvation. Ask God to give you a fresh sense of the joy of being forgiven so that you will have the strength you need to defeat sin with happiness because you have more satisfaction in Christ than in anything sin can offer. Take a few moments to pray and then we'll join together to respond and sing and shout to the Lord. Let's pray.